If you have your Bibles this morning, let's open them to the book of John. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you're using your phone or another device, we'll be using the ESV translation. If you want to change that, be able to follow along just more easily. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are some in the back. Feel free to grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible period, feel free to take that with you this morning. Let that be one of our gifts to you. Well, we're in week 10 of our series in the gospel of Christ, according to John, who was one of Jesus's 12 disciples and a member of Jesus's inner apostolic circle. And John throughout the New Testament is often referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. That's important because it helps us to understand why he communicates to us in this book the way that he does. John had a and he had a very special place in the life of Jesus and his affections for him, they bleed through this book. And that makes this not just some historical document from the point of view of an outsider, but one steeped in brotherly affection that communicates not just the facts about who Christ is, but the very nature of his heart for his people. And in doing so reveals to us the very nature of the heart of our God. In today's text, we'll see a contrast from a passage that we began a few weeks back, and we actually just finished up last week. I know that, man, we broke chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, over three different Sundays, but that section of Scripture really is one story, right? It's one interaction between Jesus and this Pharisee named Nicodemus that John records. And in it, if you remember, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that you must be born again, Right? Born both of water and of spirit. That not just mere knowledge about God as the teacher of the law of God that Nicodemus was did not equal a love for God or a salvation in God. And at this point in the text, Nicodemus, he's, he's just not getting it. All right? He's not understanding what Jesus is communicating to him. And Jesus has explained to him why which is because God had not yet given him ears to hear or a heart to believe that it wasn't Nicodemus's choice to make, it was God's. And Jesus explains this with this analogy of the wind. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then we get to probably one of the most famous texts in scripture in John 3.16. And we see the work of salvation that God has given through Christ his son. The light that shined in the darkness of our sinfulness that all those who have been born again don't just have knowledge now about that light, but they love the light. They love the light who is Christ. And so that's where what has just taken place in the chapter before today's text. And now we see Jesus on the move from there, there being Jerusalem. And we pick up in verse 22 of chapter 3. And it says this, follow along with me, chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. 
And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from a heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Well, verses 22 through 26, they really set the stage for what's taking place here, all right? So two groups administering baptism, all right? Jesus and his disciples, they're in one area baptizing while John the Baptist and his disciples are in another area baptizing. Now, I wanna stop here really quickly when it says he was baptizing, it doesn't mean that Jesus himself was physically baptizing, but that Jesus' disciples were. And I know this not because I'm really smart or I did a bunch of Greek word studies, but I just kept reading, all right? If you go into chapter four, verse two, it tells us Jesus didn't baptize, but only his disciples did. And so it raises the question for us then, well, why? Why not? Why didn't Jesus baptize? And I think it's important to point this out before we move on to the text because it actually reveals some of what we're dealing with in this chapter. It's most generally believed that Jesus didn't baptize himself because he didn't want it to become some sort of status symbol, all right? So meaning somebody to hear one of Jesus' disciples baptize them and then them to go, well, hey, check it out. I got baptized by Jesus himself, all right? I got the real deal. I'm, I'm more saved than you because I got baptized by Jesus because that's how people are, isn't it? It's why no one brags about their Roy Bean sunglasses or their Goach purses, all right? Because they're not the real deal, all right? They're not the real McCoy, all right? So both groups are baptizing and a disagreement breaks out on purification. I want you to remember that because we're gonna come back to it. But at some point in that discussion, John's disciples, they head over to him and they say, halfway through verse 26, Rabbi, which just means Jewish teacher, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, the one whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Can you just, can you just totally imagine it? All right, uh, hey, John. Hey, I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but everyone's leaving us. So dramatic, so drastic. All right, it's obviously an emotional exaggeration. Not everyone's leaving all right, these must have been Enneagram 4s. I'm part one, so I can say that. Not only do they exaggerate, but they almost start to cast blame on John here. Do you see that? It's that guy you were with. 
the one that you endorsed, you promoted, aren't you going to do something about this? I mean, guys, we're not going to have a ministry here soon, brother. Isn't that just like us? The rivalry that exists there? Man, I was, uh, I was at a coffee shop studying and preparing for this text. And as I sat there, another gentleman came in and he sat down to do some work. Now, if you do what I'm about to describe, come see me afterwards so that I can pray with you. And hopefully God's grace can lead you to some confession here. This guy, he comes in and he sits down directly across from me. I'm not talking like another table at a distance. We're at the same community table. He pops in his Apple earbuds and he starts having the loudest phone conversation in the history of phone conversations. See, Enneagram 4 coming out right there. And man, as I sat there and I listened to him, I actually had to take off my noise-canceling headphones because it sounded so loud. It sounded like Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang like going on in there. So I pull him off. And you could say I'm eavesdropping at this point, but I would argue that I'm being held against my will. <laughs> like this is a hostage situation. And his weapon of choice is an iPhone 13. He is holding me there. And I gather from the conversation that he's talking to another employee that he works with. He sells insurance as a broker. And they're talking about how their boss is pretty much the worst and how they're both angry that he makes so much more money than they do because he's really doing the same things that they are. Now, this was probably a good 10-minute conversation. And the more he talked, the more I thought, man, this, this is so ugly. The jealousy, the, the rivalry, the discontentment, the anger that was coming out, all of it. And as I thought about it more, I thought, you know what I really don't like? I really don't like how much this guy reminds me of me. Of the things that I may not be shouting really awkwardly in the middle of a coffee shop, but they're still in there. They still exist. Hiding around the corners of whatever success looks like for me. Feelings of despair when it feels like someone who's doing the exact same things that I'm doing is receiving more reward or more accolade for it. Man, that's not just an image of that guy. It's not just an image of me. It's an image of us, of all of you in here, right? We like John's disciples in this text. We don't just naturally like it when others succeed, at least not when it comes at our expense, at our decrease. I mean, you see what's coming out in this text here, right? They're, they're jealous. They're jealous, John, this ministry we've built is crumbling. Are you just going to stand back and let this happen? Jealousy is in us all, and it's, it's ugly. And knowing that about ourselves, about humanity, makes John's response here so amazing, because it's not that. John's not jealous. John's joyful. Because nothing is being taken, it's being given. Right? Look what happens in verse 27. John says this. Look at his response. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
John is so overjoyed to decrease because it means the promised Messiah is here. All right, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. This is God's plan. He's telling his disciples, no one's leaving us, right? Because they haven't been given to us. These aren't our people to begin with. They're God's people. They're Christ's people. The reason they're going to Christ is because God has given them to him. Don't be jealous. Be joyful. John then gives them this imagery of a wedding party to communicate this. This is such a brilliant image for his original audience who are both Jew and Gentile as it's something that the Gentiles would have understood culturally and the Jew would have understood both culturally and biblically as so much of the Old Testament prophecy talks about the coming of the promised Messiah in terms of marriage, of a bride and a bridegroom. Hosea 16 says this, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And this language is used all the way throughout scripture up until the end in Revelation 19 when John the writer says, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. John is declaring, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom's friend who has been waiting longingly for the wedding of eternity to begin, and it has begun. Scottish theologian William Barclay, he says this about the role of John the Baptist compared with that of the bridegroom's friend at a Hebrew wedding of the day. And I want us to understand this because it's, man, it's really different than what best men do at our weddings nowadays, right? They didn't just drink a little too much and then give some regrettably awkward speech. He says the friend of the bridegroom had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He, pres he presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together and he had one very special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and he recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in and he went away rejoicing because his task was complete. John the Baptist knows that his task is complete and therefore his joy is also complete. It would not be too long after what takes place in our text today that John the Baptist would be arrested and then later on the whims and the lusts of a king would be beheaded, all for the joy of the proclamation and increase of Christ. This is what John fully desired. This next portion of our text in verses 31 through 36 then really moves into describing the full increase of Christ, all right? The full increase of Christ through the supremacy of God the Father, the one who has given to Christ all things. John wants us to show, he wants to show us that Jesus is God. Remember, that's the point of this book. 
and why we, like John the Baptist, should and can be filled with joy at his increase. Now, I will say this. There's some disagreements among theologians as to whether these are John the writer's words or him writing a continuation of John the Baptist's words. But either way, it doesn't take away from it being God's inspired word or the reality of what it means for us who believe that Jesus is the son of God and in doing so, we testify that God is true. All right, so one of the Johns starts making some comparisons here. He says in verse 31, you can look with me. He being Jesus who comes from above is above all. He, being John the Baptist, who is of the earth, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He, back to Jesus here, who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And there's a lot to unpack there in that section. This may be where I would make the argument that these are actually John the writer's words as it seems to be pointing back here to something similar that he has already written in chapter 1, verse 18 where he said, no one has ever seen God, the only God at the, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. It's really the same message as here in verse 31. But here's what I believe is taking place specifically in 31. I think the question is being answered that was most likely being asked in the beginning of today's passage. All right, that question about purification. Right? You almost forget by this point, that's where this all started. But I think the question was probably this. Who has the better baptism? Is it Jesus or is it John? I mean, it appears they're doing the same thing. Is one better? Now, of course, the answer is a clear resounding yes to us now. But it was not so clear back then. Just remember Nicodemus these last three weeks. Right? All that he was trying to understand and couldn't. Same thing here. Jesus' ministry is beginning to eclipse John's, who has this massive ministry. And people rightly got questions. Whose is better? D.A. Carson says this, John the Baptist called people to repentance and to baptism in water, but he could not reveal heaven's counsels nor could he offer regeneration from above the long-promised renewal of both water and spirit. Only God himself could do this. John had been given a ministry to do part of God's will, but Jesus has been given the authority to accomplish all of it and to bring about the full redemptive plan for humanity. Firstly, because he is the son of God. Secondly, because he has been given the full measure of God's spirit, as we see in verse 34. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus has been given the full measure of God's spirit? Well, throughout scripture, we see that God speaks to his people through many different messengers, fathers of faith like Moses, Noah, 
Abraham, even John the Baptist. And when he calls them to do this, it's never without a certain measure of his spirit of faith given to them so that they can accomplish that piece of his will. All right, what's being said here is that that is not the case with Christ. He doesn't just have a portion of God's spirit. God has given the full measure of his spirit to accomplish the fullness of his redemptive will in Jesus. Verse 34, again, for whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives his spirit without measure. Why? Because the father loves the son and he has given all things into his hand. Something in verse 33 that I want to look back on just in case you thought I was going to skip over it. I kind of wanted to skip over it, I won't lie. Actually, start with me in verse 32. It says, He, meaning Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. How do we make sense of that? No one receives his testimony, but whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, huh? What does that even mean, John? How can no one receive, but somehow some receive? Or is John saying actually what Jesus has already said, which is no one can receive, and those who do receive do so because they have been born again. Remember when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again in last week's passage. In verse 19, we see something very similar in verses 32 and 33 today. I want to marry these two texts together and shed some light here, all right? Pun intended. Look back at chapter 3, verse 19. The light has come into the world, all right? The light being Jesus. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, there's that word, what is true, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in what? In ourselves? No, carried out in God. I need you to listen here because this is really important. So what is made true when we come to the light? God is made true. God is made true when those who have been called by him come to Jesus, the light. And in doing so, they proclaim that it is his work and not their own. That's what we're seeing in today's text, right? People are coming to Jesus, coming to the light, proclaiming that he is God, and they are doing so because God has given them to Jesus, all right? They are making their testimony that this new life they have has been carried out in God and not themselves because no one can receive his testimony on their own. No one can come to the light on their own unless they are given. John the Baptist gets this and he loves it. He is overjoyed in it because those who belong to Jesus are happy 
to decrease and love to make much of the one and only God who has given them to Jesus. All right, we end this portion of our text today in verse 36 then with this. Whoever believes in the Son, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's two things that I want us to notice here, all right? Both the word of assurance to those who believe and the word of warning to those who don't. I'll start with the second. So whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're just, man, you're really not sure about any of this. Right? You're not sure Jesus is the son of God. You're not sure that he's really able to take away your sin, to give you new life, to make you born again, both of water and of spirit, as we're seeing in this text today. Let me just say this, and in the most loving way, you're wrong. And it's what our sin does, right? It blinds us to the reality of what is true. That's what disobedience is. And by the way, that's a disobedience that we were all once in, myself included. And the punishment for that disobedience, the disobedience of sin that we inherited from our first father, Adam, in verse 36, is that in verse 36. That we will not see life for the wrath of God as it should remains on us. And you may think, well, that's not fair. I mean, that's, that's not fair. I mean, why do I have to suffer for Adam's sin? My encouragement to you today is let that thought be eclipsed by the free gift of grace in Christ. Let me make up for saying that you were wrong earlier. You're right. It's not fair. The gospel is not fair. Thank God. Thank God that it's not fair. Right, the Apostle Paul explains this in Romans 5.15. Listen to these words. He says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, meaning Adam, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience that many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Man, there is one way to God, friends, and it is through Christ. And I can't stand up here and argue you into believing that, right? I can only lay out the good news of the gospel for you that Christ loves you, that he died for you, that he's coming again for all you who have been given by God to him. And then I can trust 
that God will do that work in you for you to believe that so that you can give him all the glory and that you can have this assurance, which is the rest of that verse, which is whoever believes in the son has eternal life, not will have, has. If you trust Christ this morning, if you have repented of your sin and believe that he has paid the ransom that you could never pay for it on your own, that he is the very son of God, that he is the promised Messiah who bought you with the price of his blood and has conquered death on your behalf, then you are his. You are secured, not will be secured someday, are secured now. His work though. Listen to Paul's amazing words here in Romans 8. And they speak in this, this same completed tense. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he's also glorified. He's done it. He's predestined. He's called. He's justified. He's glorified. This is his Work, church. Give glory to God for his work and beware of your jealous hearts that fight to make it about yours. So what do we do with all this? What, is this? what does this mean for us today? Let me ask you to reflect on this and this is, this is where we will end. Are you happy to decrease for the sake of Christ's increase? And if you're wondering what that even looks like, start with this question. Who is made big in the story of the gospel of your life? Is it you or is it Christ? Does your story reveal the supremacy of God? You may have to dig really deep for this but what are the things in your life that are attempting to overshadow Jesus? All right, let me just say, these things can even be good things. And I would actually argue that most often they are good things. Things like church, all right? Do you, do you find yourself telling people about the church you go to and all the cool things they do, almost as the status symbol? Or is it about Christ who saved you? And by the way, I'm not saying that we should never tell people about the church that we go to. That'd be weird. You don't have to be all secretive about that. But is that the focal point of your salvation? Is your salvation about, man, how many Bible studies you've been a part of or maybe places you've served in, maybe even ministries that you've started? Or is it about Christ? Is it about the glory of God, about the one who has saved you from you? These are important things to ask because here's what I really want you to see from this text this morning. I want you to see how big, how otherworldly and outside yourself salvation is so that you can see how big and how glorious, how otherworldly our God is so that he can reign supreme so that Christ and Christ alone can be the central part 
of the testimony of your life. He must increase, but we must decrease. That's not just some sort of mantra or mindset that can just be attained, but like everything we have must be given. So let's ask God that he would do that work in us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grow in us a desire to make much of you, that we would decrease and Christ would increase, that you would guard us from the jealousy of our own hearts that fight so hard to make everything, including our salvation, about us, that we would rejoice greatly in what Christ has accomplished at the cross to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, our rebellion, and to be obedient to you and give to you the full glory due your name. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for giving us to Christ. It's a gift that we are completely undeserving of. May that lead us not to despair, but to greater awe and wonder for how deep and rich you are in wisdom and in knowledge. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways, for we could never even dream up such a mysterious, glorious plan. So may we see you to be as big and as glorious as you truly are. May this too be given to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.